listening to episode 9 of season 3 of Partnerships and Possibilities, a podcast on leadership. In this episode, Leaning In. Hi, I'm Sharon. And I'm Diana. And we're going to be talking about leadership in organizations. Leadership in organization happens at all levels and takes many forms. So Sharon, both you and I are of an age where we really are more you know, second wave feminists, I would say. We were we were in it in the seventies and eighties and and looking for ways of, you know, making women's lives better at work in particularly. And um and and you have stayed very involved in that area with your um with your doctoral dissertation and so on and with the Women's Center for Leadership here in Portland. Um, and and I I try to keep up, but I don't do as good a job. And I know there has been a lot of conversation and comment about Sheryl Sandberg's book Lean In. Mm-hmm. And I've got it on my Kindle, but mm. I admit I have not had a chance to start reading it yet. And I know you have dived in, and so I wonder if you could be my cliff notes and tell me a little oh, bit sure. about the book. <laughs> I will get to it, I will, but, I, but I'd like to know what all the fuss is about in the meantime. So Cheryl is the CEO at Facebook, no, not CEO, she's COO at Facebook. Right. And uh, she has some opinions about how women can take more control of their own lives at work. Yeah, yes. Is that, that is the premise, right? The lean-in premise. Uh, well, where does the term lean-in come from? Well, she, it's a term she coined. I'm not exactly sure yet um, right. how, how she got to that. But, yeah, it is about taking more... Uh, it's really about stepping into your power yeah. and and believing that you have more power than many women typically do. Mm-hmm. So, so um, you know, I think a lot of the criticism about this book is that people say, well, she was first in her class at Harvard and first in her, um, as an undergraduate and then as, as a, as a, at Harvard Business School, she had Larry Summers as a professor, and so oh, when he became yeah. Treasury of the Secretary, uh, I mean Secretary of the Treasury, right. he offered her uh, a job, and so she had an incredible right. mentor in him, and in that job, she had an opportunity to kind of see so yeah. much. Interesting, in spite of the fact that he was the Harvard president who was famously said that women were just not as well equipped for Which, technological careers. Yes, that's and so right. On, Ultimately, that's right. But and yeah. and and he he said he was misunderstood. Yeah. But but um, but Cheryl would be the first one to admit that yeah. that she's had a lot of help along the way, including these you know some fantastic mentors like him. But I don't think that that, the fact that her life has been, you know, she obviously came from some degree of privilege to be able to go to Harvard in the first place. Um, I mean, she doesn't 
pretend that she came from a poor family or Mm -hmm. any of that. But I don't think that people should let that detract from her message. You know, it was funny. As I started reading this book and some of the things she was bringing up, I was like, wow, this is so familiar. You know, I know this research. I know I know about this study, that study. Blah, blah, blah. And I thought, wow, where did she get time to do all this research? And then I thought, <laughs> no, she didn't do all this research. So I, I went to the back of the book and I looked at, you know, how the book got put together. And she had an army of oh, researchers right. led by, like, the chief researcher at um, Stanford University's Institute for Gender or Mm -hmm. something like that. And um, it's very clear she got a huge amount of help in writing this book. But that's like giving... That was like they gave her all the raw material and helped her understand what some of the implications were. And then she layers over that her own experience... Yeah. where she, you know, has evidence in her own life of how that research plays out. Yeah. And that's what I think makes the book so powerful. Oh, yeah. Because it's so credible, and she talks about some of the same mistakes that we all make. And I, as I was reading it, I thought, oh, yeah, I've done that. You know, I, yeah. I, I remember doing that. I remember feeling that way. Or I still do that. And and it she makes all of the research come alive. Right. And I think that's part of what makes it such a great book and why people like me who spent so much time reading all this stuff, but, you know, you right. couldn't sort of get traction. I mean, if I wrote about this, would I be on the bestseller list of the right. New York no, Times? She, she, I don't yeah. think so. Yeah, she make, she gives it visibility. She gives it visibility in a way that yeah. I, I think is just fabulous. So, you know, intermittently I'm jealous, but mostly I'm just really grateful to her because she's sort of reignited the conversation that that really needs to be happening where younger women are confused, I think, by this idea that they can have it all because their moms, people our age, said, oh, yeah, you can have it all. Yeah. But they're struggling to do that. Yeah. And she talks about the conflict between, you know, feeling like she can't ever be as good a mom as she wants to be and she can't ever spend quite as much time at work as she thinks she should. And she has her uh, her boss, Mark uh, Zuckerberg, saying to her um, in her first performance review, you know, you really still want to be liked too much. Got to get over that. She said it like it hit her between the eyes like she couldn't believe. Right. Um, And she realized for all of her achievements, for all of her achievement, she still fundamentally really wants to be liked. Yeah. And that's a really female thing. Right. You know, that um, being thought of as um, not likable is pretty hard for most women to digest. And in fact, you know, that's one of the pieces of research that she, um, she references, which 
I know best through the work of Alice Eagley. And mm-hmm. no, you remember that book we talked about through the labyrinth at one right. point. Um, she mentions that, but there's been a whole bunch of subsequent research mm-hmm. now where they talk about the double bind women are in that they're expected to be likable. And right. so if they're not likable, then people really are upset with them. Yeah. Um, well, and I think about, from years ago, Deborah Tannen's work. Right. About how men and women have different ways of talking. Exactly. And, and women's ways of talking is a lot about speaking in such a way that other people will stay engaged with you, will 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 look at you positively, will feel affection toward you, what whatever that is. So softening things, not holding strong positions, things like that. Um, Deborah Tannen talked about in the, what, 80s? Sure. In, out of her research. Right. And, and I know that in my life, that has really affected me. Right. Um, I know in my speech patterns, I have one way of talking. But when I write down things just out of my own speech pattern, I edit it carefully because there's all these little qualifiers and softeners and things that I want to take out mm-hmm. so that whatever I'm writing, my message mm-hmm. is stronger. But it's very hard to monitor that in my speech. Mm-hmm. And so there are a lot of things like that that she's, uh, what you're telling me is there are a lot of things like that that uh, Cheryl is identifying, not just speech patterns, but all kinds of other things that, um, that contribute to that. Absolutely. And, and, and what she's saying is that um, fundamentally that hasn't changed in our yeah. culture. That we still, we still have an expectation of women to be um, more nurturant and warmer and nicer. And if they behave that way, we say, well, yeah. she's just a weak woman, in essence, in our minds, yeah. even though nobody would say that anymore. Yeah. But... But if she doesn't behave that way, she gets punished. Well, and I think of all the men in my world, in the software world, um, thought leaders, people, you know, who are very proud of the fact and have a whole persona around being a curmudgeon. Right. And I have a hard time thinking of any women who would get away with that kind of curmudgeonly behavior, no matter how old they get. Right. Which right, is kind of interesting. Yeah, we don't get to go there. We don't get to go there so much. No. Yeah, or no. we're not encouraged to go there for sure. Well, yeah. well, but what she's saying is that the research sh- shows and still shows yeah. that not only are we not encouraged to go there, but we actually are discouraged, are, are discouraged yeah. and get punished for going there. Yeah. Um, and I, I remember growing up, I always thought this was personal to my mother. My mother's mantra was be nice yeah be nice and i always used to say why Mm -hmm. i mean i didn't get it but but and i don't know that my mom knew why knew why either (laughs) but she just kind of had this sense that that's how you got along in the world Mm -hmm. and um so the whole be nice thing just I didn't get it. Mm-hmm. And um, she, um, what what Cheryl talks about are, you know, examples where um, she saw somebody else maybe violate that and, mm-hmm. and you know, the consequences. Uh, and that even she 
you know, she she was socially pretty adept and gets along, I think, quite well with people. But her her sense about being likable mm -hmm. just at times makes her crazy because it conflicts with what she needs to do on her job. Right. You know, you can't always do everything with and be likable that there are tough decisions that have to get made. And so yeah. even when she does do that, then it, it you know, it eats at her and it, you know, you know, because it's violating her own sense of self. Right. So, you know, I think she's just raised the same issues yeah. that we've talked about, thought about for many years, but she's backed it with a ton of research, a ton of her own examples, and I think she's done women a tremendous service by yeah. by making it visible again, and uh, I know she got help writing the book too. Mm -hmm. I mean, she makes that very clear. So it it reads well. It's quite right. entertaining, actually. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I'm interested in the. Um, you know, for a long time, there's been this meme about we need diversity in the workplace because that that um, that brings with it some kind of additional ability for creativity and innovation and um, new perspectives and things right. like that. Right. And, and so for a long time we thought about that as cultural diversity, gender diversity, and so on. So a lot of the research that I've been seeing, like Scott Page's work, on he's got a book called Diversity. He's got some other books in the same line. And some of the other research that's come out is really says it's really not so much about cultural diversity or gender diversity as cognitive diversity, which is closely aligned but not the same. What you need in a group to get maximum innovation and so on is people who think in different ways, who approach right. a problem in different ways, who've had different kinds of training, and maybe a different background, cultural background might feed into that, right. but it's not... That's kind of not sufficient. It really has to be that you've got this group of people who think about things differently. Right. And I'm wondering if Cheryl speaks to that about sort of the the cognitive, you know, the way women are raised to think and the way are many women. I mean, we're making generalizations here. Right. And, and I want to be clear that we know it's not every single individual in a group who behaves in a certain way. But... Um, in general, uh, just in, in terms of what we were talking about, women largely being raised to speak in a different way, to act in a different way, to be nicer. I wonder what that does in terms of cognitive diversity and in, in, in how we think about things. I mean, one thing I would think is that maybe, I don't know if this is true, mm -hmm. but maybe in any given decision women might bring more awareness about the outcome of the decision and the impact it might have on people, for instance. If, if we're more interested in being nice, uh, one of our cognitive biases might be thinking more about, you know, how is that going to affect people? Well, is that, is that know, going I, down a, a road that's, uh, yeah. yeah? I don't 
I mm. haven't finished the book, and yeah. if she gets to that specifically, yeah, okay. I, I don't, I don't yeah. know. But I do remember an incident she described early in the book, which was that she was, um, when she was still working at Google, she was pregnant with her, I don't remember, first yeah. or second child, and she describes herself as looking like a whale, and, um, um, you know, mm -hmm. just, I guess she just got huge, um, at least she felt huge. Yeah. And she uh, parked in the parking lot and had to walk to the office. And she said she was far enough along that, that she was sort of waddling. And by the time she got to the front door of the building, she, you know, she was exhausted. Yeah. And she walked straight upstairs and into um, um, Sergey and... Um, uh, um. Larry. Larry's office, yeah. and she said, we need pregnancy parking. Yeah. We need pregnancy parking. And she expected an argument, and they said, fine, it will be done. <laughs> and the next day, there were some designated spots for yeah. pregnancy, you know, people. And she thought to herself, okay, I've done a good thing for other women here, but what about all the women before me who've suffered in silence? who yeah. were just as pregnant as I am and waddled their way and yeah. didn't have the wherewithal to be able to go, go to, to their boss, who happens yeah. to be the, you know, the, the head of the organization, yeah. and demand pregnancy parking. And and she said, so, so you know, she was, she felt good about it, but she also felt sad and, and a whole mix of other things right. because she realized that, in many ways, we, you know, keep our mouths shut about stuff that we shouldn't. We've and learned to, we've, yeah. We've learned to sort of just suck it up. Yeah. And, and she said, you know, they were, they couldn't have been nicer about it. They immediately saw that what she was saying made sense. And so I started thinking, but they wouldn't have, they wouldn't necessarily have noticed it on their own. They of needed not. somebody to bring it to right. Their of course not. Yeah. I mean, yeah. What a man's going to notice? I mean, <laughs> how would they notice that? Yeah, unless they were walking side by side. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I suppose, but yeah, but, but I, I mean, I think she makes a good point there that that um, if women don't speak up right. about their own issues, right? Yeah, then then who's going to do it for them? Right. And, you know, that's why that whole discussion about sitting at the table and what yeah. does that really mean? And that she sometimes um, will invite women to literally sit at the table and they'll say, oh, no, I can sit over here there, you know, where there are extra seats and stuff. Um, and they, in essence, put themselves out of the mainstream right. of conversation. And I, I know I've done that myself. You know that, I yeah. totally recognize that yeah. I've done that myself. Yeah, yeah. I, I many 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 years ago, I read um, I, some feminist literature that I was reading that talked about being at the table, and and the the how whether you take kind of your equal amount of space with your book and your, your notebook and your whatever, your laptop, more than your amount of space right. or less than your, and diminish yourself by taking less amount of space. And, and how the signals that that sends 
uh, even when you are at the table, how, how we have all these subtle signals. And, you know, in, in subsequent years, I have been not at all shy about taking up at least my share of the table because of that. Mm -hmm. And because, I, you know, A, I need this much space to do what I need to do, and I'm not going to give it up. Mm -hmm. Because I know that's a bad idea. It's mm -hmm. it's more than just giving up the space. It sends all kinds of signals mm -hmm. about whether or not I deserve to be there. Mm -hmm. And and I think that's you know that's another instance of that kind of um, who are we, where are we showing up, how are we showing up, kind of thing. Right. Yeah. Right. So how do the differences? I mean, there, you know, clearly there are more than physiological differences between men and women, mm -hmm. um, and and all of that is on a continuum. Sure, um, I just want to keep saying that so right, people right. don't think we're nuts. But um, but you know what? To what extent is that important? And is did, does Cheryl say men should be more like women or that women should be more like men? I mean, in the early days of feminism, I know you, I remember, I'm sure you remember, women were encouraged to be more like men. Right. You know, it was like, stop being a woman, be more like a man. That's how you'll get a seat at the table. Right. And that didn't work. No. It didn't work and didn't make any of us happy. Idea. It was a bad idea. It didn't make <laughs> any of us happy. And I think was part of the backlash against mm -hmm. feminists. Feminism, because you know that that didn't feel good either, right? But so how how does she talk about how those differences get negotiated? I mean, how? Yeah, I'll, I'll leave it. Well, there. you know, there's there's a lot of data that that I saw years ago, and I think she, she says it's only strengthened now that the more you move up in an organization. Yeah, the less difference there really is. That really, that, oh yeah, interesting. That that the, if you will, emotional intelligence that you need to move up in an organization really crosses gender lines um, more and more and more. And so, if you were to compare the behavior of a good CEO, n not everyone, but mm -hmm. but a, a good CEO. Um, they, whether they were male or female, they would have certain characteristics like, you know, being a good listener and yeah. soliciting ideas and that kind of stuff that, you know, the days of the really macho male, I'm in charge and your job is just to obey orders, that kind of leadership is pretty well gone anyway. And so whether that leadership... Or on its way out, at least. Right. Yeah. If that was being enacted by either a male or a female, it would be unacceptable. So, so you know, she's, she's saying that she doesn't really see a female or feminine yeah. style of leadership. I think another way to say that is that among more enlightened management folks and leaders that what we at one time called sort of a feminine or female style of leadership, which is uh, the more contemporary model of, um, of participative, um, yeah. inclusive, that that's what's being practiced by both men and women. Um, where does that leave difference? Mm -hmm. You know, 
I think just because of life experience, men and women are going to be sensitized to certain issues differently. Mm -hmm. You know, I just... Yeah. Um, if you're never pregnant, you're never going to notice the parking lot. Exactly. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and and that isn't about being unconscious. Right. It's just why would you? Right. Why would you notice that? I, I mean, maybe as you said, if if a man was walking alongside an eight month pregnant woman and he noticed she was having trouble walking, okay. But what are the chances? Right. Of exactly. That? You know. <laughs> How often so, is that going to happen? Right. So I yeah. think we do bring different life experiences to bear. But what what I what I would like, and I think what some of the kinds of stuff she's saying is I'd like to get to the point where um, we don't ask a young woman, so how are you going to manage that work-life balance thing? What are you going to do about combining kids in a career? We never ask men that question. Right. It's a given right. that if a man marries and wants children in his life, there are going to be children and he's still going to have a career. No one asks him to make a choice. To make a choice. Right. Right? Right. So, I mean, that's that's the kind of place we need to get to if if we're talking about real equality. Mm -hmm. You know, numerically women are making progress, but even as late as 2012, the last data from Catalyst says that women still only make 90% of a, of on the professional dollar. women professional women yeah compared to men yeah now it ten changes years when you get to lower level jobs yeah, but, yeah. ten years yeah. ago ten ten years ago that number was seventy two or seventy three percent I think so I mean that's a lot of progress in mm -hmm. ten years which of course is you know a blink um, of history but it, really it's twenty thirteen. And women still don't There's actually not yeah. make, yeah, really? Yeah. And yeah. if you look at the numbers like of women CEOs, it's minuscule um, compared to what it was. Mm -hmm. So something is still not working in our culture. Yeah. And it's true that we need, I believe, to really ever really get there. We need some of the kind of institutional supports that they have in, like in Europe, where yeah, people get that. paid. You know, they get paid family leave for a certain period of time. You know, they are guaranteed to come back mm -hmm. to their job. So, when, as a culture, we say, "Okay, women are the only ones so far that can have kids. We have to <laughs> make sure that they don't." Yes. lose out on, you know. Their families don't lose out based on that. Right. Yeah. I mean, until we do that, I think it's still going to be way too hard as an individual person to figure it all out. Where do I get childcare? And, you know, where, uh, yeah. you know, will my job be there if I take more than two weeks to have a baby? You know, yeah. All of those questions. Right. But she's saying that that's all true, and we make it harder on ourselves when we don't recognize that um, that there are things that are within our control 
and we we give our power away. And she she uh, clo uh, she I remember she quoted Alice um, Walker mm -hmm. about the most common way people give up their power is by thinking they don't have any. Mm -hmm. And she was saying she's not blaming people. You know, she's not she's not saying, you know. Right. You're, you act powerless and it's your fault. Um, what she's trying to say is you have more power than you think you do, mm -hmm. and I'm encouraging you to use it. Yeah, explore it and use it. Yeah. And that's a different message. And I think actually some of the criticism of, yeah. of this book is that people feel like she's blaming them. And, mm -hmm. and I don't think that's where she's and coming from at all. You don't get that message. Yeah. No. Well, so that actually brings me to one of the other things that I, I was wondering about whether she addresses. And, and I don't even know. I wonder if in the circles that she is in, if she even experiences this. But I know that a big topic in the 70s and 80s and 90s was sort of the whole sense of the old boys club mm -hmm. of the there the the executive washroom the 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 idea that there are places where decisions get made conversations happen and decisions get made that women are just excluded from mm -hmm. and um and you know i I don't know if in the circles that she's in sort of in Silicon Valley and that if that's as true as it was at one time, if, if she's in any kind of bubble there, although there's a lot of misogyny in the, in, in the software, hardware, high-tech industry for sure, still to this day, um, we see it all over the place. Um, but I wonder about that effect. I mean, is that, are those barriers breaking down at all or... Was there any research that spoke to that? Um, well, I don't know. I had, I, I maybe it's later in the book. Yeah. Part I haven't gotten to, but I, I do know that she was making. Um, she mentioned that she was making a presentation. Um, somebody in New York, and she was the only woman in the room. And at break time. She asked where the women's restroom was, and everybody just looked at her. Um, they had no clue, and she realized that she was probably the first, first and only, first and only woman that had you know yeah. been there, uh, needed to use a restroom, and I don't know. Yeah, I, I'm not sure. Yeah. I mean, she does because of who she is, yeah. and because of the context that in which she operates, and the credentials that she has, and the credentials. She, her buddies are, you know, Meg, we, yeah, yeah, Meg right. Whitman, people, you know, right. we're big cheeses. And um, I know that one of the topics that she talks about at length is the whole idea of mentors and sponsors. Yeah. Um, and, and she mentions that phenomena of you know, people who barely know her or don't know her at all coming up to her and saying, you know, will you be my mentor? And that she and the women at her level really dislike that yeah. um, because they have no particular affinity with this person. And she was saying, for crying out loud, I know that everybody says you need to have a mentor, and that is true. It's a really good thing. But you need to let that evolve out of some work experience that you have with somebody where you 
develop some affinity for right. them and them for you. She said, you don't go up to don't a do stranger. A <laughs> you know, that's crazy. Unless you're in an organization where they have a mentoring plan that matches people. And then it's, it's, it's okay because that's the culture. Yeah. But she said, you know, it, it's like being hit on. Yeah. Um, and that, that that's something she dreads. Every public appearance, people come up to her and say, oh, will you mentor me? I want to be just like you. And she wants to throw up, yeah. you know, which I totally get. Right. Um, but that, so she just puts it out there like that. And I, that's what, that was one of the things I found so refreshing about this. Mm -hmm. um, she's really working at not being so nice. It's very right. good. <laughs> <laughs> Well, that's great. That is really great. Yeah. Um, well, the other the other thing I wanted to ask about was the the whole support for women, and you you began to touch on that, but the idea of you know corporate sponsored health care, or I mean, because God knows if we can't, or I mean, child care, not health care, yeah. corporate sponsored child care. Um, God knows if we can't get. You know, government government health care. We're probably not going to get child care, right? Um, in the same way that they have it in Scandinavian countries and things like that. But uh, does she speak at all to that need of, you know, where are the institutional supports for for women being able to keep moving in their careers? Next podcast. Next podcast. That actually is a whole long topic, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Yeah. It really is. Yeah. Um, yeah. Okay. So. All right. Well, let's put a pin in this one then. Okay. <laughs> and, you know, those of you who who are listening, if you, um, if you yourself have had some of these experiences, if you have wives, daughters, sisters, aunts, grandmothers who've had these experiences... We'd love to hear from you and and hear how the how you or the women in your life have worked through some of these challenges. Um, we'd love to hear the stories. Thanks for listening. Please leave your comments on our blog or email us info at futureworksconsulting.com. This has been episode nine of season three of Partnerships and Possibilities. Thanks for listening. <laughs>